in the book of Philippians, we have some unique information concerning Paul, the Apostle Paul, and how he operated in life. We have more information about Paul primarily through the book of Acts than we do anybody in the Bible except Jesus. And we see how Paul operated in the wisdom of God, how he followed him by the inward witness to go and to do whatever God had for him to do, which provides a, a tremendous example for us to follow. But then we also see some of the personal parts of Paul's life through his letters to the churches. Now, the, the book of Philippians was written very close to the end of Paul's life. He was writing probably from Rome when he was imprisoned, during the time he was imprisoned, right at the end of his life before he was martyred. And Paul talks about the dilemma that he has. In chapter 1, he says in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Most people don't think of death as gain, do they? People without hope in God, without the knowledge that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, for them death wouldn't be gain. But Paul, because of the relationship that he has, and certainly through his writings, to a great degree, we have as well with the Father. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what, shall I, what I shall choose, I what not. In other words, he's saying that living, the kind of life that he's talking about, really doesn't have anything to do with being here. Living in the flesh is being alive on the earth. So he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I've got a dilemma. I've got a, a conflict. And I'm not sure which way I'm going to choose. He says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. That means he hasn't decided yet for sure. Verse 23, for I am in a strait betwixt two. Here's the dilemma that he has. On the one hand, he has a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He doesn't say it's better, folks. He says it's far better. You know, most of the tears we shed for our loved ones are for us. Because when we know that our loved ones were in Christ, were a part of the family of God, they're in a place and in a situation that's far better. Again, Paul didn't just say better. He said far better. Now, how did he know that? Well, we have record that Paul was caught up into heaven and saw things that he couldn't describe. King James translates it as not lawful to, to utter or speak about. But it really means he didn't have any words to describe it. For example, if you were caught up into heaven and you saw colors that were different and unlike any color that we have here on the earth, how would you describe it? If you saw things in heaven that there's no parallel here for uh, parallel for here on the earth, how would you describe it? So when Paul talks about being caught up into heaven and seeing and hearing things that, he, that were not lawful to utter, he's simply saying, I don't have any words to tell you. 
I don't have any words that are descriptive. Folks, we need to realize heaven is not just earth without sin. Heaven is in existence in every way and in every manner that is so far beyond anything that you can compare it to here on the earth that in Paul's case, it became indescribable. So Paul says, that's where I want to go. I want to go there too, don't you? Don't worry, I'm not getting up a load to go today. (laughs) But the blessings of heaven are certainly something that we should focus on and be aware of and I believe look forward to. So he says, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Notice he's going to live whether he's in the flesh or not. It's the same life. Paul even talks about the experience that he had being caught up into heaven. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Now, how could you not tell if you were in the body or out of the body? Except that the life that we have now, the eternal life that is ours now, is the same eternal life that you'll experience there in heaven. And Paul seems to indicate that the flesh has little or nothing to do with the quality of life that is eternal life. So he says, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I have a a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it's better for you for me to abide in the flesh. He says, if I stay here, I can continue to teach you. If I stay here, I can continue to be an example to you. And that's helpful or needful for you. Verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. In other words, he's saying, I've really kind of decided already. I'm going to stay here for your sake, not for mine. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now, I want you to look in chapter 2. Paul didn't write this letter in chapter and verses any more than we would if we were writing a letter to people that we were acquainted with or friends with. The translators separated it for reference sake and by and large the translators did a wonderful job. But Paul is revealing some things to us knowing that he is close to the end of his life. And he identifies some things that he operated in and principles that he established in his life well let me say it this way he shows us how he lived his Christian life and in chapter 2 let's start reading in verse 6 he said let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus in other words he's saying this is the attitude that we all should have he's living up to his own preaching he's saying this is my attitude too let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. As I said, the translators by and large did a good job on the things that they translated from uh, the Greek language in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, but Greek language in the New Testament to English. But there were certain things that the translators 
didn't know and didn't understand about God, apparently. See, a translation is built on two things. First is the knowledge of the language, how well the translator knows the language. But the second thing is the translator's understanding of God. Because any translation, every translation, is going to reflect or be influenced by what the translators think they know about God already. And so there are certain passages that the translators get to and they go against every rule of translation, whether it be the the language itself or ignorance on their part, not knowing how God operates or who God really is. A good example of that is in Isaiah chapter 53 where it says, Jesus bore our griefs and carried our pains. Those words are sicknesses and and, uh, uh, sorrows. I'm sorry, I messed that up. They say sorrows and grief, but those words are sicknesses and pains. They went against every rule of interpretation, interpreting those same words in different places and in other places in the Old Testament to mean sickness and pains. Why did they not translate it there in Isaiah 53 when it specifically talks about Jesus' sacrifice? Because they thought they knew of God that God did not include healing in the atonement or his redemptive plan. We know that he did from a couple of different sources, many different sources really, but the Holy Ghost gives us a commentary on Isaiah 53 in Matthew chapter 8 where it says Jesus took our sicknesses and bore our infirmities. Well, there are other places like this, this being one of the places where the translators almost made up their new, made up on their own a new meaning or gave the words a new meaning. Let me read this to you again. Starting in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? They thought it not robbery. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, you could rely on some of the places in the Gospels where Jesus identifies himself and his Father as one. That's a claim of equality with God. And that's one of the reasons that the Pharisees tried to kill him. Every time he said something like that, it tells us that the Pharisees either took counsel to put him to death or in a couple of places they took up stones to kill him. So here where it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, we could interpret that to mean that Jesus recognized that he was equal with God and that's okay. That's a good way to think. But then the next verse doesn't make sense if we do that. It says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God who being, uh, but made himself, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a serpent. Here where it says he made himself no reputation. Other translations give us a clearer meaning of this phrase. It literally means he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. He emptied himself. See, folks, a lot of the people in the church world, maybe the majority of the church world, thinks that Jesus healed and did miracles on the earth to prove that he was the Son of God. But that's contrary to everything Jesus said. Jesus said of himself, 
I'm not doing the works. It's my Father in me. He said, the words that I speak to you, they're not my words. I'm speaking God's words. So here where it says he made himself of no reputation, he literally emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. We know that for sure because of John chapter 17. When Jesus is praying with his disciples at the, after, uh, well, even at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper that he had with his disciples just an hour or two perhaps before he was taken captive in the Garden of Gethsemane by the Romans or by the Jews who delivered him to the Romans. He prays about his resurrection and he says to, to uh, the Father in that prayer, he says, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the worlds were. Well, if he's asking God to restore something to him, that must mean he doesn't have it then. Otherwise, why would he pray for it? So if he's asking God to restore unto him the glory that he had before the world was, that would be the heavenly power and glory of the creator himself. Then how was he doing miracles here on the earth? He answered that question on several occasions. And the reality is, after he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, he came to the earth to be a man, even as this scripture will go on to say. And it was the anointing of the Holy Ghost that came upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River that enabled him and equipped him to do the miracles and perform the healings that he did. So here where it says Jesus made himself of no reputation, it literally says that he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. And that was necessary for him to come to the earth to be a man, to be able to identify with man while he was here. And that's why the majority of the times in the scripture that Jesus refers to himself, 60 out of 65 of those times he refers to himself as the son of man, not the son of God. And when he did claim to be the son of God, three of those five instances were at one time. That was the subject that he was talking about and he identifies himself as the son of God three times in that one instance. But the vast majority of them he identifies as the son of man. So Jesus' life is an example to us of what a man anointed of the Holy Ghost can do. Let me start from the beginning again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's the emptying of him, himself of his heavenly power and glory and took upon him the form of a, serv a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul is telling us and showing us the principle. He's saying just as Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. We should be willing to empty ourselves of any claim that we have to fame or worth here on the earth through our natural birth or our life. 
Luke's chapter 3. This was instructive or critical, really, to Jesus being able to finish the work God gave him to do. And that's the principle. The principle is if we will empty ourselves of anything we think is to our credit from the flesh or through the flesh, that and only that will be a determining factor as to whether we will enter into what God has for our lives. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you to me is indeed not grievous, but for you it's safe. The word safe means secure. He's saying for me to say the same things over and over again to you is the way that you can lay up an effective foundation of God's word in your life. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. He's saying that people will come in and try to take from them what God has given them. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's saying we're really the Jews. The family of God is really the nation of Israel. Now we know there's a natural nation of Israel. We know there's a natural descendant line from Abraham. But we're part of the family of God. We're Abraham's seed through the new birth, not through a natural descendancy or genetics. He goes on further and says in verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks he has, has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have much more. In other words, he's saying, here's my pedigree. Now remember, he's talking about the principle in the previous chapter. He talked about the principle of Jesus entering in and fulfilling the work God had for him to do by, by his willingness to empty himself of his heavenly power and glory. Paul's going to show us the same example in his own life. These are things that he might have to glory in in the flesh, beginning in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Now when he says those things that were counted gained to him, he means this is what put me on the fast track with the Pharisees. Paul was climbing the, the social ladder of the religious order of the Pharisees. And everything he says there, though it might not mean much to us, everything he says there has specific meaning, has a value attached to it with the Jews that was as great or greater than anybody else that they could come in contact with. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Folks, there's not much of anything on this earth that's worth less than dung. And even though it might be a crude way to, to, to convey the information, he is saying without equivocation, he's saying those things are just as worthless. The Jews would have thought they were important. There was a time in Paul's life where he thought they were important too. 
but not once he met Jesus. And notice how he talks about the knowledge of Jesus. He said he counted all those things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. This word excellency means superior. It's talking about a measure of importance you attach to a thing. And he said the knowledge of Christ Jesus is the excellent position that he encourages us in having the same attitude. So he says, I count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He said, that's all that matters to me. The only thing that matters to me is the righteousness that came through Jesus' sacrifice. Not anything I've accomplished or not anything in my past. To this end, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he's saying, my attitude toward God and his word, toward the sacrifice that Jesus made and the righteousness that is made available by the shedding of Jesus' blood. He said, that's the only thing that counts with me. And I want to pursue that through the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, so that I might be worthy of the resurrection that's to come. In a couple of places, Paul would write, to the churches and he would reveal the things that he's prayed for them and there are some common elements that he prayed for all the Christians in all the different churches that he had been to and that wrote letters to but there are a few discrepancies or a few uh, unique characteristics I guess I should say to one of the churches he wrote that they might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing now, so often we see the word worry, worthy, and our first instinct, our first reaction is to focus on or magnify our own unworthiness. But folks, if Jesus made us righteous, you can't be unworthy. To claim to be unworthy when Jesus made us righteous and shed his blood for our righteousness would be to call God a liar and would be to call the word that reveals his righteousness to us a lie. You are righteous whether you ever feel it or not. So Paul talks about the things that's important to him. The driving force in his life was to know Jesus. Him meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and having the vision, hearing the voice from heaven. That was just the beginning point for him. He made his life's pursuit to know Jesus. That's a good thing to focus your life toward, isn't it? Verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either yet were already perfect, but I follow after, if that, if I, that I may apprehend that, for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. The word apprehend means to seize or take hold of. He says, I want to take hold of the things that have taken hold of me. 
Again, Paul's conversion experience was a little bit different than mine. How about you? I didn't get saved because of a blinding light that shined from heaven. I didn't get saved because Jesus spoke to me in a vision. But folks, no matter how we got saved, no matter what the specific details or circumstances of our experience is or might be, we were apprehended by Jesus himself. He seized our lives and brought meaning to them. And Paul says, I want to seize that which has seized me. I want to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. That's why he's pursuing the knowledge of God. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do. Paul singles out some specific truth. He says, in order to take hold of the things that have taken hold of me, in order to be found righteous through the blood of Jesus, not through my own works, in order to pursue the character and the nature of God, the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, he said, this one thing I do. This one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul said, the number one characteristic or the, the number one thing in his life has become in his growth of the knowledge of Jesus, in his pursuit of that knowledge, in the excellency of that knowledge. He said, this one thing I do. I may not be good at anything else, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things that are behind. I press forward or pursue the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect. The word perfect there doesn't mean without making a mistake. It means to be complete. We're complete in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean we're living a perfect life. It means we've been made complete. It means we've been given the tools where we can live under righteousness. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this even unto you. In other words, he said, this is so true, even if you don't believe it now, God will show you. He'll reveal it to you. Now, folks, remember where Paul came from. Our introduction to Paul in his life starts in the book of Acts when Stephen is stoned. Paul stands by and guards the clothes for the people that are doing the stoning. He was consenting unto Stephen's death. Then we see in Acts chapter 9 how that Paul was given authority by the Pharisees, the chief priests and the Pharisees, to pursue and persecute all those that call on the name of the Lord or call themselves Christians, those that are believing in the work of Jesus instead of the keeping of the law of Moses. The devil's plan has always been to destroy the people that believe the right things so that they can't have any influence on the people that don't believe. 
And he was good at his job. He had put a lot of people in prison. He had committed a lot of people into situations where their lives were lost. So when Paul enters into this family of God, when he becomes a Christian, he's got quite a sordid past as far as God is concerned. Now, he thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was pursuing God by killing the Christians and putting them in jail and so forth. He thought he was serving God. Just like there may be others in false religions today that think that by bringing violence, they're serving God. But can you imagine the realization that Paul comes to when the, the people, he goes to towns and goes to places where people he put in jail are probably still in jail. It's not like he can go to the magistrates of the cities and say, you know, I found out Jesus is real and Jesus is alive. So all those people I put in prison for serving him, let's just let them go. Not to mention the people that lost their lives. That's a pretty tough, pretty tough place to start out as a Christian, wouldn't you think? My point is very simply this. He had things in his past that the devil would certainly use to torment him. One of the things that Paul identified as the cares of this world and the things that he had to deal with. He talked about the persecutions that came against him. He talked about the beatings that he took. He talked about the imprisonments that he experienced. He talked about being shipwrecked several times and being beaten with rods and, and so forth. He gives us a whole list of things that he endured by following God's plan for his life and spreading the gospel around the world. But then he says this. He says, but the one thing that comes upon me daily I'm sure he was grateful that the beatings weren't daily, that the shipwrecks weren't daily, that the fastings and situations where he was without basic needs for human care, those didn't happen daily. But the one thing that he said comes upon me daily is the care of all the churches. Folks, Paul spent a lot of time talking about false teachers, false prophets, false apostles. We saw in some previous verses here how that he says, beware of evil men, beware of dogs, beware of the concision. In other words, the Jews. He knows what persecution is like. He used to be the persecutor. And the care of all the churches that comes on him every day. He knows the work of the devil. He was involved in it. He knows how the Jews willingly send people to disrupt these churches and to imprison those that have turned away from the law of Moses. This is first and foremost on his mind. I want you to look with me now to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Paul saying the one thing that he did, the overriding principle in his pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
He said, the one thing, the foundation thing is I have to forget the things that are behind. Notice in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Here's God speaking through Isaiah, and he said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. Answer me a question, folks. How can God not remember our sins? He remembers everything. He knows everything. There is nothing secret. There is nothing hidden from God. How can he not remember our sins? There seems to be a characteristic of God that's part of what makes him God. See, when we see Paul talk about forgetting the past, for us that just becomes a choice not to think on it. And Paul talked a lot about what we think on. He goes on in chapter 4 of the letter to the Philippians and tells us what to think on. He said, whatsoever things are good and just and holy and of good report, if there be any virtue and be any praise, think on these things. He's telling us what to train our thoughts toward. He says, be careful for nothing. Put away worry. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. He tells us that the truth of God's word is the only thing that we should focus our attention on in our pursuit of God in our own lives. But you know as well as I do that we can never forget the things that we did. We can never wipe them away. When I say we can't forgive, we can choose not to remember. But there's a difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. God says, I will remember thy sins no more. That means as far as God is concerned, when the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, what we think of as sin, what we remember in our past experience as sin, doesn't exist anymore. So if we ask God to forgive us, whether through the new birth or forgive us after we've become a Christian and missed the mark, when we ask God to forgive us, if we talk to him about it again, he doesn't know what we're talking about. Because he chooses, as an aspect of deity, not to remember our sins anymore. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the things that the devil uses, the greatest weapons that the devil uses in our lives and against us, to stop us from getting to the place in God that we really want to be from our hearts, are things that we've done in the past. As far as God is concerned, you don't have a past. As far as God is concerned, you have a life in Christ Jesus. But there is no past. Or the only thing of our past, in our past, that is credited to us or held to account are the works of righteousness that we've done. So if Paul is giving us an example, and it all comes down to thinking the things of God. Remember he said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Be willing to be a servant. Empty, of, empty yourself of whatever you think in the flesh you have going for you. In other words, make your relationship with God new every day. 
Don't try to live on yesterday's revelation or yesterday's truth. Keep your relationship with God and your fellowship with God new every day. Now notice this, verse 25 again of Isaiah 43. I, even I, and he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Now what's he saying? Remind me of the sins that you committed that I did away with? Certainly not. He says, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. When he says, put me in remembrance, what's he talking about? Put me in remembrance of what? See, folks, if God doesn't remember our sins anymore, what does he remember? What does he remember? There are 12 times in the Old Testament, or 11 times in the Old Testament, one time in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, that the Bible says God remembers his covenant with Abraham. God remembers his covenant. When we go to God, in prayer, in fellowship, when we go to him, he doesn't remember the mistakes that we made. He remembers this covenant that belongs to us. He remembers the things that belong to us through the finished work of Jesus. Folks, I believe this is why Paul comes to the realization and the truth that he shares with us in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 tells us why he did it. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He goes on to say, If you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that God remembers. The promise that God remembers. The promise that God sets his attention on. I remember a time in my life where the majority of my prayer life was, uh, was apologizing to God. You know how much spiritual growth I experienced during that time? Less than none. Because it's not remembering the things that we did before. Now, don't get me wrong. I had the right attitude. I felt terrible about the things that I had done. I felt terrible about the mistakes that I'd made. But the reality is, if the Bible's true, thank God it is. The reality is, I wasted a lot of time feeling sorry. I wasted a lot of time talking about things to God that he refused to remember. And one of the most difficult things, one of the most liberal, liberating things... But one of the most difficult things I ever experienced was when I finally started talking to God about me being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. See, I used to think because I felt so bad about the things that I'd done in my past, I used to think that that would be hypocritical for me to talk to God about righteousness in any way other than I don't measure up. But when I started seeing what the Bible said, about taking hold of things by faith. See, the fact is, when we were born again, we were made righteous. Whether you ever feel righteous or not, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I came to the understanding, or at least I thought I did, 
I didn't find out that it was true until after I put it in practice. See, the Bible's only true for you to the degree that you're acting on it. Beyond that, it's just theory. We got a lot of Christians that are living on theory. Rather than experiencing the results and the reality of it for themselves. But when I started talking to God about me being righteous, the thought that I had was that this is going to make God really upset with me. Because the idea that I had at the time was that he wanted me in a state of feeling sorry for the things that I did wrong. But who does that serve? If you've ever experienced that, you know it doesn't serve you well. And there's nothing in the scripture that tells us it serves God. So who does that kind of Christian life serve? Only the devil. We play right into his hands. And he keeps us from the things that are before. The things that are ahead of us, in other words. He keeps us from God's plan being realized in our future. By and large, by getting us to focus on our past. So when God says, I blot out thy transgressions and will remember thy sins no more for my own sake. Not for your sake, not for my sake, but for his own sake. Then he says, put me in remembrance. What does he want us to remind him of? His word. The covenant promises and blessings that belong to us now because of what Jesus did. He wants us to put him in remembrance of his word. Now, why is that? Has God forgotten his word? Does he need reminding? No, he needs to hear that we know what he promised. He needs to be aware of the fact that we remember his promise. And by putting him in remembrance, lay claim to it by faith. The Bible says the memory of the righteous is blessed. Well, that can't be true if you're remembering your past. Your failures, the failures of your past is what I mean. If the memory of the righteous is blessed, that means we can only remember things according to what the Word of God says and declares. But I can tell you from personal experience that if you begin to walk that way, the things of the past that the devil brings up to your memory will be as if it happened to somebody else and was just a story that you heard told. It won't hold on to you any longer. And that's the only place that we can walk in the fullness of what God has for us. Again, look at Paul's example. Look at the things that he had to put away. Look at the things he had to choose not to remember and, and focus on. Imprisonments by, of people that just simply wanted to worship God. Simply believed in Jesus just like he does now. People being put to death. He says of himself, he said, I did it ignorantly. But he still did it. The awesomeness. Of our Heavenly Father only remembering His covenant regarding us. And not our mistakes or our failures or our choices to do the wrong thing.
That's an amazing thing to me. It must be a characteristic of heaven too. Because the Bible says that when we get to heaven, God will wipe away every tear. The thing that I first noticed about that scripture when I found it is the question, what are people going to be crying about in heaven? But there must be a time. There must be a period of time that we have a chance to see things that bring us sorrow. Maybe even lost loved ones. But the Bible says that God wipes away every tear. There comes a point in time where he removes from us the remembrance of anything that could bring us sorrow. Because there is no sorrow in heaven. So there has to be some kind of memory wipe that takes place according to God's plan and purpose. And if I can say it without sounding disrespectful, God lives under that memory wipe condition full time. Paul writes to us that he, we should live that way too. This one thing I do, forgetting that which is in the past, I aim, set my goal for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus. I owe my mom a great debt because I found Jesus through her. I'm just glad I found him as early as I did. I wasn't even seven years old, just before my seventh birthday, I believe. And she led me to know God. Some of us come from situations like I just described that are blessings. Other, others of us had different experiences, difficult experiences. Experiences perhaps that kept us away from God rather than bringing us to Him. But how we got there no longer matters. Being there is what counts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you do not remember our sins. We thank you that for your own sake, you have put away the remembrance or the memory of our failures, our mistakes, our wrongdoings, and that according to your word, you only see us in Christ Jesus now. You only see a people washed in the blood of Jesus. You only see us as righteous by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We put you in remembrance, Father, of your covenant. We put you in remembrance that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed.
We put you in remembrance, Father. You said the Holy Ghost would never leave us nor forsake us. So we remind you that we believe for the help of the Holy Ghost in every situation in life. We remind you, Father, that Jesus said that we would hear and know his voice and the voice of a stranger we would not follow. So we thank you for leading us by your Spirit through the inward witness into your perfect plan for our lives. And Father, we thank you for giving unto each one of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our spirits are opened. That now we know what is the hope of your calling. And what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in each one of us as believers. That we might be filled with the fullness of God. We love you, Father. We magnify your holy name. In the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, folks, have a wonderful Mother's Day. Don't forget there's no healing school tonight. And be